everybody. I'm uh, so glad to see you here in person and glad to see you that are online with us today. We're just grateful that you're here uh, to worship with us. We're going to continue our study through the book of Malachi, so if you want to turn there, you can do so. But, uh, before, but as you're doing that, let me just talk to you a little bit about some things that have been going on in our world. I don't know when the last time you went out to eat was, but are you one of those types of people that whenever you go out to eat, you expect good service and you tip according to that good service? Uh, and, and what about those places where you actually go up to the counter, give your order yourself, pick your food up yourself, and yet when the receipt pops up, there's a place for a tip, or on the little screen now, you can actually decide if you want to leave a tip or not. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I'm going to leave a tip for walking up to the counter and coming to get the food myself, does that mean I'm getting a discount, right? It's kind of like when you go to, to the, the grocery store, those places with self-checkout. If I check myself out, does that mean that I get a discount, at least the hourly rate of the person there? Because I don't like the self-checkout uh, because even though they're supposed to be more convenient, they take a little bit longer to get through because the person in front of you apparently never worked retail before. And so, and you always find that person. And they always buy all these fruits and vegetables, which means you have to punch in the code and everything. Am I the only one who has these problems? Because it's like a neurotic issue for me. It just makes me crazy to go to a store. I've actually switched where I shop for my groceries because there's a particular chain that still has people who check you out. And there are lines always open there. And I go there for that reason, not entirely, but, but for those reasons. But let me get back to the idea of tipping. Uh, do, do, you, do you provide someone a tip out of, out of uh, uh, just being gracious or because they deserve it? The, the original ideal of what TIPS, and the word TIPS actually means to ensure proper service. It's an acronym, T-I-P-S, to ensure proper service. And the ideal was is that you would put the money down on the table ahead of time to tell the person who's serving you that today I'm going to ensure proper service. And so if there's $10 on the table when I first get here and you come back later and there's nine, guess what you're not doing? You're not providing proper service to me. Uh, it's kind of an archaic way of doing things, but it also kind of kind of motivates you a little bit, right? Like you started with 10, you're down to 5, not sure what you can do to get back up to 10, but you should really try harder. Now, I don't know about you, I like the idea, but it does frighten me that whenever your food is in a place where you cannot see it, you don't know what actually happens to it if it went from 10 to $5. Is that is that just me? I get a little freaked out about stuff like that. I don't know what it is because I am a demanding customer. I'm a terrible customer, just to be perfectly honest with you. But, but I like the ideal of to ensure proper service because there is an incentive based in there, right? And if done properly, it's respectful, and both, both parties understand the agreement as we go into this. I want good service today, and I'm ready to pay for good service today. But we're also in an entitled mindset where I just expect good service, and I'm just going to be fair. During all this COVID stuff and everything else, if all you have open is a drive-through, you better get it right. Because fewer things are more frustrating than driving away from the drive-through and the order's not right. I can't even go inside to some of these places and complain to the manager about what I didn't, didn't happen at, at the drive-through. And so I would love to, to take some of my money back or maybe decline the thing, right? So here's my question for you this morning, and I want to invite those of you who are here to log in to our Facebook page, and, oh, to our live service, and interact with some of the people there. But I just want to ask you this question and let you talk about this yourself this morning. Is, is do you leave a tip even when you get bad service? Even when you leave, get bad service. Now, I've never waited tables or done anything like that, but Amanda did. And when we first uh, began to date, I was apparently not a very good tipper. And she educated me properly on that. But I also said, if I don't get good service, I'm not going to leave a good tip. And she says, well, those people are college kids, and they're working hard, and they're getting $2.13 an hour. You should really help them out. I'm like, they should work harder. I mean, you took the job, right? I mean, I, that, that's how my mind works if you haven't figured this out by now. But I've become a better tipper. But I will tell you, when we get really bad service... This is what usually happens. She says, I'll be in the car. Do what you need to. So I know it's really bad whenever she gives me the go-ahead to throw down the beat down, okay? I, I know it's gotten really, really bad, but do you, do you tip even if you got bad service? I have mellowed a little bit. I do tip a little bit better because of them because I've kind of gotten to the place now that I could complain to the person above whoever my, my waiter or waitress was, but that's the person who hired them. And so why would I want to talk to them about, about what's going on? It's, they're the problem, really. They haven't empowered their employees. That's just me, okay? 
As we get into the book of Malachi this morning, you're probably wondering, where is he going with this? Last week we finished up in, in chapter 1 where, where, where Malachi was the messenger. That's what his name means. And he's talking to the, to, to the people on behalf of God. And God and the people are going back and forth. And they're really complaining about having not honored, uh, been honored by God. And God's saying, you've not honored me. And you need to, to honor me is to elevate me to a place external, to a place higher than. And to, to honor me is to show me worthy of regardless. And so God is worthy of honor regardless of what he does or doesn't do as we think he should. And so the people are having a difficulty with this because they're like, we're not in a place of prosperity where we think we ought to be. We're, we don't have the things we should. Things aren't going the way we want us to. And, and God is particularly going after the priest saying, you have accepted unacceptable offerings. And you're doing so because those unacceptable offerings are providing you a fat belly. Because you're taking more of, of, of less value from the people, and in such, you're actually just excusing their, their improper worship, and you're part of the problem. Well, in chapter 2 this morning is where we're going to pick up. Uh, God's not done with the priest. He, 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 I don't think he's fully driven his point home this morning. And so as we're looking through Malachi chapter 2, we're going to start the first couple of verses. And I'm going to go a couple of verses at a time. And we're going to explain this a little bit so you understand what's happening this morning. Because Malachi the messenger is trying to explain to the people that the king is coming. And you need to be ready for him. And as the messenger, as God's messenger, I'm trying to get you ready to receive the Holy of Holies, the, the, the sal salvation of all mankind. And if he were to show up right now, you'd be in trouble. You'd be in serious trouble, particularly you priests for the moment. But I'll get to the rest of you people in a minute. That's what Malachi is saying. So in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this, And now, O priest, this command is for you. So it's getting personal now. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. This is harsh language. This is a hard word from God. God is saying directly to the priest, if you will not honor me, if you will not be the example to the, to the other people watching, if you will not honor me, I will curse you, and I will curse your blessing. In fact, I've already done so. Have you ever heard the term generational sin? And if you study the Old Testament, you know, and there's, there's a lot of things about generational sin, and sometimes God will say that it, because there is sin that is rampant, unconfessed, undealt with, unatoned for, that this sin will not only wreak havoc upon the sinner, but also for the generation that comes afterwards. Now, I think Scripture actually shows us a couple of different things where that's the case. One, this is just God saying that you blew it, and you had a chance to fix this, not just for yourself, but for future generations. And I want you to understand the severity of this, because God's hope would be that the next generation would not do what the one before them did. That's kind of like parents, isn't it? We want better for our kids than we have for ourselves. We want them to make better decisions than what we made ourselves. We want them not to be in the situations that, that, that we were in ever. We don't want any harm or hurt to come to them. But guess what? They make decisions. They make choices. And if we, if we share with them our examples, perhaps maybe they'll make different ones. But, but God also says, and I think this is part of this generational sin thing, is that, that things, more things are caught than taught. You, you understand what that means? is that if this generation sins, the next generation is going to watch them sin, and they're going to follow suit because this is how mom and daddy did it. And that generational sin is not just going to be a curse upon the next generation. It's going to be a learned behavior that has become acceptable within the sinful society that has walked away from God's word and his truth, and they're going to perpetuate that. And so what they do now is just an extension of what happened in the previous generation. And just look what happens generation after generation after generation after generation. And if you need an example, just remember the United States was founded upon the principles of religious freedom. And look where we are today. Good example, huh? Kind of painful. But Jefferson and Franklin and all those guys, they were right when they said, you, you get the government you deserve. Right? God is saying the things that are happening to you, priests first and foremost, I will curse you. In fact, I've already cursed your blessing. I think this is twofold in the first two verses of chapter 2. First of all, what I think he says is that when you priests get up to bless the people, when you get up to proclaim God's goodness upon the people, it's void. It's empty. 
it's meaningless. They're flowery words from someone in today's day and age especially who is eloquent in speech and gets up and says things that make you feel all good about yourself so that you can wallow in the filth of your sin and be happy about it. Because that's essentially all the more power that comes from that priest's blessing upon the people is that it's an empty blessing. And secondly, I think what God is also telling the priest is this, that I've already cursed you and removed the blessing because whatever you throw out there, it's empty and void. But secondly, the people are still bringing you junk, worthless sacrifices. And you consider that to be blessed. You've got the wrong impression of what blessing is. You consider the service that God is providing for you, you're accepting less than perfection, which God is. And you're okay with that because it suits your particular needs in particular. And God is calling them out. Many of you have probably heard in Numbers chapter 6, the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May his let his countenance upon you and be gracious. You know that, that song? It's out of Numbers chapter 6. And usually that's verses 23 through 26. But verse 27 in that Numbers chapter 6 passage says something really interesting. It says this. It says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. May the Lord bless you and keep you if my name is upon you and I will bless you. May he lift his face to look upon you if my name is blessed and elevated amongst you. We miss out on that reality that as the people sin under the direction of the priest, that not only have the priest shelled out an empty blessing, the people aren't getting blessed at all. You ever tell somebody something just to make them feel good even though they did a bad job or they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing? You ever leave an enormous tip for someone who didn't do a very good job? You know what happens? They continue to not do a very good job because they didn't earn that. They didn't understand that. It didn't come that way. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be gracious and kind and tip your waitress, okay? I'm saying you should do those things. But I'm just saying when you look at this from an authoritative point of view, will the priest be able to speak into people's lives? God's saying you've been hollowing out empty blessings, and it's really returning absolutely nothing, and the people are struggling, and, and, and it's going to catch up to you. But look what he says here. He says that, I, I'm, that, that you don't put God's name on unholy things. Now, we do that, don't we? We put God's name on unholy things all the time. We, we, we declare it in the name of God. Okay, it's sinful. So you can't declare something sinful in the name of God and hope that it's going to be okay. We, you know, it, it's like when you, get, when you go and you, you, you load up on the buffet, if those ever come back. I kind of hope they do. But, but it, it, when you load up on the buffet and you just say, okay, I'm going to bless this food to the nourishment of my, my body, it's 8,000 calories of saturated fat. And I'm asking God to bless this this morning. And I wonder why I'm overweight and I have a heart condition and I can't breathe when I walk up steps. Because I asked God to bless my buffet, right? That's exactly what's going on. And if you've ever noticed, buffets are full of cheap food, right? Right? That's exactly what the priests are doing during this time. They're bringing this buffet of cheap blessing upon the people, and the people are just eating it up all they can, and they're wondering, why is God not really blessing us? Why aren't we not fully equipped to worship the king who's coming? Why are all these bad things happen? The curse takes away the, the priest's livelihood, and it's starting to get a little bit personal. So look what, he, what happens in, in verse 3. It says, Behold, I will, re will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Now this just gets gross, just not going to lie to you. If you've ever field dressed an animal, any of you hunters out there, you know that the easiest way to get that thing out of the woods is to cut out all the entrails, right? To get all the stuff you're not going to eat, it's not going to good for anything, and you get all the weight. And then if you don't get that out early enough, what happens as, the, as this dead animal begins to decompose and break down, it begins to spoil the rest of the meat, right? And you want to make sure that happens out there in the field, okay? And so you can clean this thing up, bring it back in here. Now, when the priest would sacrifice an animal, they would sacrifice a live animal, and they would kill this animal. But not all of the animal would actually go to the altar. They wouldn't just put it on there and burn it all up. They'd cut out the entrails and the dung and all the stuff because that's not acceptable to the Lord. You don't put that on God's altar. And so what God is saying is this. He goes, you know all that stuff you discard? I'm going to smear it all over your face because everybody knows that's gross. Everybody knows that's disgusting. Everybody knows that that's not worthy. But if you keep bringing this lame nonsense to my altar, this is what's going to happen to you that I will spread it all over your face. I will, I, like a big disgrace, right? Y'all know the song, right? 
This is exactly what God is saying to, to the priest. <laughs> She's back there doing it. Way to go. This is exactly what God is saying to the priest, is that, look, you continue down this, this inappropriate worshiping. You continue doing the wrong thing, and this is what's going to happen. Now, God's not a big if-then sort of guy as far as conditions are out there. It's a when-you sort of guy. When you do this, I will do this. This is how I will act and respond. And so he's saying, I will spread this all over your face. And that is a, an example of shame. That is a, an example of someone who has been pushed out because that person now, that priest particular, is unclean. He is not suited to walk into the temple and to give offering on behalf of the people. And so let me just ask you for a second. I know some of you come from a, from a Catholic background, and in particular from Catholicism from of old, what would often happen is, is you would go to the priest and you would confess or you would t- uh, tell him what was going on, and the priest would take your money or take your offering or do whatever, and they would absolve you of whatever your sins may be, and that you would have to do 12,000 Hail Marys and whatever the case may be, right? And you would do those things. And then later on that day, you'd see the priest, and he would be out at the bar having had way too many to drink. And so now he's a drunkard, and he's carousing with, you know, doing all kinds of things he's not supposed to be doing. And so this is the person who spoke to God on your behalf. Anybody else have a problem with that? You see, the difference is during the day you could see that sin publicly. But even today, the private sin in my life, would you ask me to go and speak to God on your behalf? The good news is, is that now we can speak to God directly. We don't have that, that intermediary from a human point of view. We have the Holy Spirit and Jesus to plead on our behalf. And, and I'm so convinced that Jesus is in a constant state, at least in my life, saying, God, I know he's messed up. I know he made a mistake, but he does believe in me. He does trust in me. And he's not been made perfect yet, and I'm working on him. And when he is with us in glory, I will have washed away his sins by my blood. And so I'm putting my name on him. I don't know too many priests of the day during Malachi's time that were really worthy of putting their name on the people. And to be honest with you, if you're buying off the priest under the table or you're you're letting him let you get away with things, do you really want that person speaking to God on your behalf? Because they're not worthy to do so. And what hope does that provide for you? And this is God speaking directly to, the, to these people saying, listen, this is a fate worse than death for you priests. It's shameful. And shame had a strong, strong, strong power. Some of you who are familiar with more Eastern cultures know that in the Eastern culture, shame is a big thing. And you don't bring shame upon the family. You don't bring shame upon, upon yourself. You don't bring shame upon the community. Please remember that Israel is an Eastern nation. It's not a Western nation like we have here. Shame is different. We actually celebrate our shame here. We throw it out on Instagram and Facebook. In other parts of the world, shame still exists, and there's a strong shame culture, even to the point to where in some households and families, when a child shames or dishonors the family, there's something called an honor killing that happens because they brought shame upon them. That's crazy, folks. That's crazy. But that's how important it is to know that you're in right standing with the community. And Malachi, the messenger, is speaking out, And God is talking directly to these priests and saying, you have no business doing what you're doing, and I will bring shame upon you that is due. You've earned it because of what you're doing. But look what he says in verse 5. My covenant with him, meaning Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Underline this if you have this in your Bible. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Truth was in his mouth. Truth was in his mouth. Levi was the third son of Jesse, and he, his tribe of people, way after he had died, his tribe of people from his brother Joseph was deemed to be the priest of the nation. And because they were the priest of the nation, they had no land granted to them. Read the book of Joshua, and you'll see where all the land was divided up to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Levi was not one of them, and Joseph wasn't either, by the way. Two of his sons were, Ephraim and Manasseh. But because Levites had no property, they had no cities of their own, they had no land to do all these other things, the people would provide for them. They would come and they would give them food and grain, and they would take part of the offerings for the Levites. But the Levites had to live according to a specific code. They had to be worthy of going before God on behalf of the people. And if they weren't worthy to do that, they were, they were often just in really bad shape. And Levi, there was a promise made to them that they would continue to do so. Let me read something for you 
uh, just real quickly. You're welcome to turn if you want. But Numbers chapter 25 speaks of a man named Phineas. And, and here's what's happened in Numbers chapter 25. Israel uh, uh, lived in, in, uh, in, in Shittim, and the people began to, to um, uh, my Bible says, to whore with the daughters of Moab. There were actually, God told the people of Israel, do not marry, do not date, do not sleep with women who are not Israelites. Do not do these things. Because you are a holy nation set apart to be set with me directly. And the people were doing it. They were doing it openly. And God said, I'm having enough of this because I, I'm telling you, you're my chosen people. You cannot behave this way because my chosen people need to live under my covenant and under my rules. And so the people were saying, whatever. And so these, in, uh, these people invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, little g, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. God told Moses, who was leading the people at the time, to go to your priests and the chiefs and anybody who is, 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 has any sort of relationship with someone who's not an Israelite, kill them. Hang them in the sun and let all the people see this is what happens when you do not do what God wants you to do. Because not only were they having inappropriate relationships with people who were not God's chosen, they were bowing down to their gods. This happens repeatedly in the Old Testament. This is exactly why David told Solomon, do not marry women of foreign countries because you'll be bowing down to their gods. And that's exactly what happened. And Solomon lost the kingdom that was given to him. And the kingdom split after that. And so Moses goes and he tells these people to do so. In verse 6 of chapter 25 of Numbers, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family inside of Moses, inside of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Basically, they said that I'm living in an open immorality, and I'm going to bring this person right into the middle of this congregation in front of all of you, and I'm going to thumb my nose at you and just tell you I can do whatever I want, however I want, with whoever I want. And Moses, you can't do anything about it, and all the rest of you are too afraid to do anything about it, and I'm just going to keep living my life the way I want to live my life, and I don't care what God has to say about anything, and I'm going to redefine what sin looks like because it makes me feel good and I'm happy about it, and that's really all that matters is how I feel, right? Does that sound familiar to any of you? Because that pretty much describes all of our sin, just to be perfectly honest with you. And so this man brings this Midianite woman into the tribe right in front of Moses and in front of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And the people were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's where they went to go meet God. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of the perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. God tells you to do something, you do it. And to not do it is sinful. When God says not to do something and you do it, that's sinful too. And when God was very clear to the entire people of Israel to and what not to do and they didn't do it, one man said, I will trust God, I will follow God, I will honor God. And he took matters not into his own hands, he exacted out God's jealousy. And so while that one Israelite and a Midianite woman were stabbed through the bellies with a spear by a priest, for crying out loud, God said, because you've done what I asked you to do and your jealousy burned for me, I will take my wrath away from the entire people because you've represented me well to them and them well to me. You've handled my business. 24,000 people died in this plague because they were openly sinful, and God sent a plague upon the people, and it took his priest to do the right thing, and it cost two people their lives, but thousands of others were spared. And they did so because it was the right thing to do. 
None of the priests during Malachi's day were men like, like Phineas. Not a one of them. And God was calling them out on that. And he said, I promised you that you were going to have a priesthood in your descendants forever and ever. And you're not living up to that. You're not honoring me. You're not doing what I told you to do. And furthermore, because you're doing so, the people are suffering. This is where God is really beginning to get fired up on this. It's not just that the priests are behaving the way that they are. It's the rest of the people are suffering because of that. And God said, as my spokespeople, as my appointed ones to speak on their behalf and mine, to lay atonement down for their sins, you're not worthy. And therefore, the people have no hope. They have no opportunity to have their sins forgiven. And you seem to be fine with that, but God is not. God is not. He says, I'll make my covenant with them because a priest in good standing can sway the wrath of God upon his people. Now, many a time, some of you will come to me and you want me to, uh, to, to listen to what's going on in your world or, or to hear about what's happening and maybe make you feel a little better about it or give you some, some advice here or there. And that's great and everything. I appreciate that. I really do. But let's just be perfectly honest with you. Every one of you at some point have had a conversation with, with, with somebody, probably me or somebody else, knowing what your sin is and asking me to excuse it for you or asking me to make it feel a little better for you. Or asking your spouse to make you feel a little bit better for you. Or your best friend to make you feel a little bit better for you. Because it's bad enough that I'm in this sinful uh, reality and I've accepted that. But now what I really want to do is just not be here by myself. And so if someone else will just excuse it, I'll feel better about it. I think that's a true statement and I feel comfortable making it this morning. Because I think that's humanity. I think we're all looking for a way out as long as it doesn't cost us much of anything. I think we're all wanting our behavior to be excused as long as we don't really have to do much and we don't suffer that much. This is what God is calling out to these priests, and he's saying, listen, when my wrath comes upon my people, if the priests were in right standing with me, they have the ability to stop it from happening. But right now, as they are, they're a terrible representation of God, and they're a terrible representation to the people. And so if God were to lay his wrath down upon Malachi's people at the time, the priests wouldn't be able to do anything about it. There is not an honorable one among them who could stand before God and say, please, God, don't do this. Just as Abraham pled with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, if he could find a thousand righteous people, if he could find a hundred righteous people, if he could find ten righteous people, if I can find one man, God, would you please not destroy all of this? God destroyed both of those cities, and only Lot and his daughters made it out alive. Abraham was a righteous man, and he held back the wrath of God only upon Lot and his family, but the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah suffered. Just consider for a moment that your sin is something you need to deal with, and that a priest saying nice things over you or making you feel a little bit better about it in the middle of it does not fix the problem. And if God were to come in and exact his wrath, it's not the priest that's going to be able to stand up before God for you because he's just as sinful as you are. In the New Testament day and age where we live today, we have the blessings of Jesus to be able to say that I can stand before God on my own because I'm going to. I don't need someone to go and fight for me from this earth. I need one who is not from this earth to go and fight for me. And Jesus says, I got you covered, but you need to believe in me. But that also means you have to stop sinning. Let's finish this in verses 7 through 9. It says this, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside... From the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. There used to be a time when people would go to the Bible and they would look for truth, and now they're just looking for advice. There used to be a time when people would go to the priest and they would ask them to help them with whatever's going on, and they would they would make them feel a little better, but they wouldn't give them truth because it was too hard, because it may hurt somebody's feelings, because that's just too harsh. We don't want to represent God that way. Listen, a holy God deserves to be represented appropriately in everybody's life. And what God is saying to them is this, is that I'm actually going to give you a fate worse than death, that the priest should be leading people to salvation with the truth of God, but instead they're leading them to destruction with lies and placated comments and, and niceties. And they're not allowed to do that. And in the Old Testament days, those priests who led people to stumble were taken out and stoned. They were to be killed. 
And I actually think what God is saying right here in Malachi is even worse. He's saying instead of killing you off and making an example to everybody else, I'm just going to let you live in your shame. I'm going to let everybody see that. I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, the news has always loved to watch a pastor fall. They've always loved the juicy story of a scandal of a, of a man of God who made a bad decision. They like to smear it all over everything. What is it about watching the holy fall that makes people hungry and excited about that? See, instead of trying to bring people up to his level, what we've done is brought them down to our level. And now we're equal all of a sudden. Let me tell you, friends, we are exactly equal. We're in need of salvation that only Jesus Christ offers. And there's not a priest on the planet that can save you except for the one high priest, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. This was Malachi's message. He says the king is coming and we need to learn to listen to him. The king is coming and we need to learn to listen to him because his instructions are in the book. Not his advice, not his suggestions, not his five-star recommendations, not his Yelp review of the Bible. His instructions are here. His truth is here. And God doesn't change his truth. Because when it was true, is true, and will be true, that is the validation of truth. Everything else that we look at truth is subjective, except for God and his word. And when he told the priest, the way I told Levi and his descendants to behave, and to honor me, and to offer sacrifices, and to enter into my temple, and to lead the people, that's how I told him to do it. You should keep doing that. And you're not doing so. Instead, you're causing them to stumble, and you're leading these people down a bad path. And people, listen to me, they need leadership. People need leadership. We talk about government this and government that, but even in our own church, we're governed somehow by how we lead, by how we speak, because people do not self-govern. Does anybody else understand that? It is not amongst a group of people for everybody to come to the same decision on their own, independent, without conversation or someone leading or steering them. It just doesn't happen that way. I know we would all like to think that way. Well, if we're all just in lockstep together, we're all just in unity together, someone has to unify us. Someone has to lead us. Someone even needs to lead us all to make a bad decision collectively. But we're still being led. We're still being led. And this was, was Malachi's complaint to the priest particularly. You are leading poorly, and it's going to cost the souls of the people. This passage frightens me. Because I see myself in that role, and I could identify with every one of those priests knowing that I have not lived up the way God wants me to. But likewise, I also know what's going on in your worlds and in your hearts and in your lives. And this is where I think we need to understand the king is coming, and we need to listen to him. And I want to give us a couple of suggestions for that this morning, if you will. First of all, we need to spend time in his word. You may know the story of Eli and Samuel. Samuel knew the voice of God. He had heard it before, but it had been a long time, and he's got this young man, Eli, that three times in the night, he hears, he hears the name being called out, Samuel, 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 and he runs into Eli, and he's like, it's not me, son, go back to bed. It's not me, son, go back to bed, and finally, he realizes that it was God. You see, Eli hadn't heard God's voice in so long, he wasn't sure who he was listening to, and Samuel had never heard God's voice before, and so it was up to the older priest to teach him to hear and listen to God and to know who's talking to him. And sometimes we hear a lot of things that sound godly because they make us feel better, but that's not God's voice, especially if we can't validate it to Scripture. John 10, 27, 28, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. Sometimes in today's world of subjective truth of the 24-hour news cycle, what we miss out is that we go and we Google uh, an answer for something, and we get it, but it's not in the right context. And Jesus is saying very clearly, if you want to know who I am, if you want to hear my voice, you've got to know me. You've got to know me, you've got to listen to me, and you need to be able to understand when I'm talking, when I'm not talking, when to listen, when to go and do, and when to stop asking questions. Stop continuing to look for the answers. I have heard this over and over with people whose lives are just a mess because they will not submit to God. They don't want to identify Him as holy. They don't want to confess their sins and have them forgiven because it means too much change. It's just too hard. And they're looking for an alternative way. An alternative way may be some sort of, 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 of baseless Christianity that just makes you feel good about being there on Sunday or going to this day or whatever. It may also just be something like being a good person 
being charitable this time of year and giving to a charity here, doing this and this and this, trying to buy off my sins. It may just be that if I tell myself the same lie over and over and over again, then it's really not that bad. And Jesus is saying, if you hear my voice, you're going to hear truth. And I know my people. And so the people that reject Jesus, the people that reject his truth, they're not his people. And if they are, then judgment is coming upon them. And Jesus is saying that I love my sheep and I'll chase after them and I'll go and get them whenever I can. But he didn't ever say anything about the sheep that aren't his. He says there are many more and you out there as my disciples need to go and get him and bring those back in here so that I can know them too. But if we're going to be able to, to, to listen to God's voice and understand that we're hearing God's voice for real, we got to know the scripture. we got to know the truth of scripture. Because to be perfectly honest with you, I could stand up here on a Sunday morning and tell you almost anything with passion and conviction and throw in some funny stories and this and this and this, and most of you would probably believe it and never validate it for yourself. That's just human nature. It's also that you're bad people, so don't, don't let yourself off the hook, okay? That's just how it is. That's exactly how it was in Malachi's day, 2,500 years ago at least. It's how it is today. We tell lies so often they become truth. We believe them ourselves. And so all anybody's got to really do is put it in a nice new package and we're going we're gonna to take it hook, line, and sinker. The second thing I want you to see is, is how to spot a fake because honestly, these priests during Malachi's day, they were essentially false prophets. And Second Timothy is a great place for un- us to understand the difference between a prophet of God and a false prophet. Second Timothy 2, 2 through 4 says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I confess, I struggle with that some days. I don't have a lot of patience sometimes when people come to me and they tell me of the wrong that they're doing. I just want to shake them and say, stop doing that. This is easy. Quit. Why do you do that? I don't know. Well, stop it. I don't want to. I don't know how. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough courage. No, actually, let's go back to the first one. I don't want to. That's really what's going on. I I confess, I don't always have the right patience I do. And careful instruction, verse 3, for the time will come when people will put up with will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I've seen it happen in a lot of different environments, so let's don't just put church up there too. At some point, we just want to be around people who think the way we do, who act the way we do, who excuse the behavior that we have, and we all want to be in the same boat together. And as long as we're in the same boat together, what could possibly happen to us? You're all going to be judged for your sin. That's what can and will happen to us. And that's where we miss out sometimes, that we have these, these dens of iniquity, as they're often called, where, where people gather to, to elevate their sin. But as long as misery loves miserable company, we're all together and we can do that. And as long as you're doing the same thing as I am, it must be okay. And it's not okay. It's not okay if the entire society says it's okay and God says it's not It's not okay, but people will surround themselves with those who tickle the ears and tell them what they want to hear to make them feel better about that. And when the king shows up, he's going to put an end to all those things. He's going to say, enough. This is not how I instructed you to do so. This is not how I taught you to do so. This is not truth. And so, friends, we're living in the same time as we were in Malachi. Right now, we're trying to to figure out what the false prophets are. This is not to say that just because it's a large environment or a big church or whatever, then, then, then it must be false prophets. That's not the truth. There's a lot of big pastors out there who, who preach in big churches, and they preach good truth. And there's a lot of people who never step foot in that door because truth is being taught there. And so I don't want to say big or small. I don't want to go down that argument. I just want to tell you truth versus a lie. And people will believe the lie if they don't know the truth. And we need to learn the truth. We need to understand the truth. We've got to be in God's Word. We've got to know how to spot those fakes. We got to listen to the Holy Spirit inside of us. There was a study done a while back about the difference between absolution and confession. And there's, this was an interesting study. And, and in, the, in this study, the difference between absolution and confession basically said that I go before someone and I tell them what's going on in my life and they say, you're forgiven. But I don't do anything else. Now, confession takes another step. It says I own the decision that I make. I'm responsible for what's going on, and I'm confessing my sin, not just to you, but so that I can deal with it as well, so that I can not only take hold of it like it's taken hold of me, so that I can continue to deal with it. And in absolution, it just says, yo, you go and you say whatever, and you go on about your life. And in this study, what they found was, is they went to people who had gone through a process of absolution, and they asked them to donate to charity afterwards. And the people who 
were absolved of whatever their issue were. They didn't give the charity. They just went on about their life. But the people who confessed, who truly went through that process of saying, listen, I'm owning my sin, I'm accepting how it separates me from God, and I want to do something about it myself. Not just have somebody else forgive me, but I want to do something about it myself. Those people were 50% more likely to give to charity. And so it led us to, to this quote, that I, and you know how I love quotes. This person says this. It says, this suggests that rituals of absolution may make people feel better, but they don't make people behave better. Unburdened by a guilty conscience, the newly absolved lapse comfortably into moral complacency. You know what this looks like in today's day and age? It's whenever we boast about our sin and everybody hits the like button or high fives you or joins you in it or tells you it's okay, I've done that before too, it's really not that big of a deal. It's sin, people. It's sin. It is a violation of God's law. And whether you agree with it, like it, enjoy it, disagree or whatever, it is sinful. And sin is punishable by death. Let no one tell you any differently. And all sin must be dealt with. And it doesn't get dealt with on behalf of someone else absolving you. It gets dealt with because you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that he will forgive you of your sins if you will allow him to do so. But just asking him to do it, but making no choice to to confess that yourself and to deal with that on your own, is going to put you back into a place of moral complacency. I'm just going to begin to normalize my sin and get wrapped up in the normalization of sin every place else. And that's exactly where all cultures in the United States and in Egypt and in Iran and any place else, we've gotten to a place where we have called what is evil good and what is good evil. We are morally complacent because we've missed out that we actually are royal priests ourselves, called to that as believers in Jesus Christ. John 5, 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing else worse may happen to you. This was right after Jesus had healed a man who went down to the, to the, to the pool of Bethesda, and it was believed when the angel would come and dip his wings in there, the first person in there would be healed of whatever his problems were. But this man was so lame that he couldn't get to the pool. Someone was always in there a little sooner than what he was, and he lost hope that he was ever going to be healed. And when Jesus came to him and asked him, what do you want? He goes, I want to be healed. He goes, all right, man, get up and go. Later on, when Jesus found him, he goes, hey, I see you're healed, man, way to go. Yeah, I am. He goes, now, sin no more. Those are words we don't want to hear, do we? Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. What we want to be told is, okay, you made a mistake, the problem's over with, it's dealt with, go on about your life. No, don't go back to that sin. Stop running back to it, stop embracing it, stop loving it, because that's not loving God. Go and sin no more. We don't often like to speak that way. We don't like people to, to speak into our lives that way. And Jesus is saying, this is why I came to die once and for all, because I love you. Please don't take that and cheapen it by continuing to wallow in your sin, going, yeah, I heard about Jesus. He's a pretty good guy. We fist bumped at the Pool of Shalom. It was awesome. Oh, I'm committed to him. I love him because he loved me and laid his life down for me and picked it up. And I should honor him, and I should listen to him when he tells me to sin no more because not only is he giving me advice, he's giving me instruction. And I think that's one of the greatest problems we have today that we are so busy looking for advice that we will not listen to instruction. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I want somebody to tell me what I could do. I want options for my sin. I want a, I want a payment plan. Can I put my sin on layaway? Can I just deal with it a little bit at a time here or there? Do you know that most of it, y'all remember layaway? It's Christmas season. Some of y'all remember that. I used to work at Walmart during the Christmas season. And let me tell you what happened in January. We had all this layaway stuff that people didn't come pick up. It was all in these big containers at the back of a Walmart store that people didn't come pick up because they didn't have all the money or they forgot about it or changed their mind or they found one on the shelf and picked it up and they went to a party and they left it in there. Let me tell you something. You can't put dealing with your sin on layaway. You need to deal with it now and go on about your life, honoring God, listening to his instructions, not asking people for their advice. The priest, and any priest for that matter, myself included, from a world's point of view, can't do anything better than just give you advice unless we open up the book and tell you the truth of God's word. And just as the people in Numbers chapter 25, sin was sin and it had to be dealt with. And Phineas was a righteous man and he held off God's wrath. 
And to not tell the truth about God is to only give people good advice. And let me tell you something. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You've heard that before, right? And the road signs are humanly advice. It's not God's truth and instruction. And if people will listen to God's truth and instruction, they'll stop looking for advice and they'll do what God wants them to do. Finally, I just want to encourage you this. Have an honest conversation with yourself and with your God. I think this is where we miss out a whole lot is that when we get ourselves into a rut or we get ourselves into a problem, instead of having an honest conversation with a God who loves and listens and instructs, we go someplace else. And many times we go someplace else because we know the right thing to do and we just don't want to do it. And if I can go to someone and make me feel a little better about not doing it, it's going to make my life a little better. God was saying to the the priest here in time of Malachi is that you're not even worth going to and doing that. You're such a bad example of, of representing me that I don't want my people to come to you. I don't want them to come to someone who's not worthy to stand before me and offer sacrifices on their behalf. He says, I want to be their God. I want them to be my people. Psalm 20, uh, 32, 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What that verse really is saying is that my unconfessed sin continued to eat at me and gnaw on me and chew on me and eat me up. And as long as I kept it to myself and I didn't tell anybody, I got angry, I got agitated, I got normalized to sin, I got deeper into a sin that was consuming me, I was making decisions and they were being made for me because instead of confessing my sin before God and dealing with that, not just on my own, but letting him know that I know that I've broken your laws, I've broken your heart, and I love you and I've sinned against you instead. It was like dry bones in the heat, drying up and withering, and it's eating me away. Let me ask you something. What sin is just eating at you right now? What is eating at you right now, destroying you a little bit from the inside out? And just remember, he who says he is without sin is a liar, and the truth is not within him. Folks, we're to confess our sins one to another, not for absolution, but for instruction, for God's truth. And the priests weren't able to do that, and fortunately, we have a high priest. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confessed sin, by the way, folks, no matter what you're into, is not the end of the world. Listen to me. Unconfessed sin is. Confessed sin is not just saying, okay, I'm like everybody else, but I'm in need of Jesus. And we have got to do a better job of realizing that we've got to deal with our sin. We can't go to people asking for advice if they're not going to bother to break out the instruction book. We can't go to people just asking to be absolved when what we really need is forgiveness. And the only one who offers that forgiveness is Jesus Christ. Because anything short of that is causing people to stumble. And in the Old Testament, a priest that caused people to stumble was worthy of death himself. As the priesthood of believers, those who've accepted Jesus Christ, we are pouring into people's lives. We're investing into people's lives. We should be telling them the truth, not telling them what we think. Well, what do you think about this? Hey, don't let me lead you astray. Let's see what God's already said about this. Oh, well, God doesn't talk on this topic or this topic or whatever topic. Yes, he does. And we need to stop believing that God's irrelevant and that the Scripture is an old, archaic book because the Scripture is the Word of God and it is true and it is good for every situation, building up, rebuking, strengthening, teaching, training. And we've got to believe that. We can't have these subjective truths that only deal with certain things that I want to deal with. As God was speaking to the priest and he's telling them that I have a complaint against you, the priest fired back, well, how are you going to take care of us? How are we going to do these things? God says, I've always taken care of every one of your needs. Now I need you to live up to your end of the bargain. You are placed in a position of authority with great responsibility for my people need leadership. And I've appointed you to do so. Lead them well, but instruct them in truth, just like Levi, your father, had. And teach them to confess their sins as well as yourself. In the church age today, I think we do a terrible job about asking people to confess their sins because the last thing we want to do is for people to feel bad about themselves. If you feel bad about your sin, that shame comes from the world and from an enemy that hates you. That does not come from God. God shames his people when they outright do what's wrong. 
But let's face it, we've earned it. But he also forgives his people when they confess to him and ask for forgiveness, and he cleanses us. Remember earlier when I said the priests were going to have their faces covered with dung? That's our sin. Our faces are all covered with the sins of our life, and God says, I want to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Is that good news? I think that's great news. My question for you this morning is, do you just want your sins to kind of go away, or do you want to deal with them? Are you looking for someone to give you advice about your sin, or are you looking for truth that can be dealt with once and for all? Sadly, many people are afraid to take that step, and I'm sorry for that. But you're going to have to deal with it. And I pray that as a pastor, as a person who is charged over the flock that's here, that you're going to know that I'm a sinful man and i got my own issues. But together we can talk to God about this and we can do so through his word and the truth of his word. That's where the priests of old missed it. They were only out for themselves. They weren't doing what God wanted them to do. God's for you. He's not against you. He wants to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, but you've got to deal with your sin. And I pray that you'll do that this week. Let's pray together. Father, we stand before you as sinful people, not unaware of that reality, God. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we would indeed understand that, that we need to stand up with the same wrath and jealousy that you have for us, that we need to be killing sin in our lives and the lives of others the same way. And Father, I just pray for those that are wrestling with whatever unconfessed sin that they may have that is stopping them from having the right relationships. Father, stopping them from moving forward past these stumbling blocks in their way because there's nothing that seems to be working, Lord. They've tried everything else, and now, well, maybe I'll go talk to a priest or some holy person, but, God, they need to be talking to you. So I pray, Lord, you would reach into the hearts and minds of those who are stumbling with whatever the case may be. Draw those things out, Lord, and show them forgiveness. Show them grace. Show them truth. Lord, I pray that all of us would stop looking for advice and would seek truth, Lord. And as you promised, if we seek you with all of our heart, we will find you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to observe the Lord's Supper.